Good morning. Uh, today I'm with um, Serge Strubans, who is the director of the Europe, the Middle East and North Africa for the Institute of uh, Economics and Peace. And he's uh, also um, adjunct professor at Vesalius College and lecturer at the Belgian Royal Military Academy, both in Brussels. Welcome. How are you? Fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, as you know, I, I'm doing these interviews to find out a little bit more about people who are working in the field of peace and security, particular uh, interest on women in peace and security. But since you work at the Institute for uh, Ec Economics and Peace, I was thinking what a perfect opportunity to just get an overview of what's happening in the world of peace and security in the last, well, since 2008, no? Yeah, absolutely. This is where we started with the first uh, global uh, global peace index, actually. Mm. So, how how did it start out the global peace index? And I mean, where did where did that whole idea come from? Well, uh, the founder and still today executive chairman of the Institute for Economics and Peace, Steve Killele, uh, traveled the world. Has been engaged in philanthropy for. A uh, couple of decades right now, and about uh, less, a bit less than 15 years ago, he was in in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo in Eastern Kivu, really one of the most impacted and most violent places in the world. And while being there, he asked himself, "What is the most peaceful country in the world?" Went on the internet, looked for it, and could not find it. And if today you would take out of the of the Internet the Institute for Economics and Peace, you could still not find a ranking of most peaceful countries in the world. So this is where he decided first to create a global peace index ranking uh, countries according to the levels of peacefulness, starting from the most peaceful one and ending with the least peaceful one. And uh, once this was done and it got the necessary traction, then he decided to create a think tank around this uh, flagship product, and that's the Institute for Economics and Peace. Mm. Well, you know, that I guess that is kind of a business way of thinking is if you want something to happen, you have to measure it. And But it's incredible that he actually went ahead and did it because it's such a huge topic. Um, and I noticed you have uh, quite a few other um, indexes as well that have shown up. Uh, the, the latest one I noticed was the, uh, the one in the environment, the ecological threat register. Yeah, absolutely. So since the creation of the Institute for Economics and Peace, uh, the Global Peace Index is still our uh, flagship product, really measuring and quantifying peace. But after that, we also, of course, diversified the research. So uh, we were able about eight years ago to extract one of the most impactful indicators, terrorism or the impact of terrorism, and create a global terrorism index about or around this, uh, uh, this indicator. Uh, we also started from the very beginning to think about um, a measure of positive peace, or at least the development of a concept of a framework of positive peace. It would be the environment in which... Uh, you create the most favorable conditions for every human being to flourish and to achieve its, its full potential. Um, and basically those are the institutions, the attitudes and the process you need to put in place to create, maintain and develop peace, or at least an environment in which this is, uh, this is possible. So it's a systemic approach to peace. So we see peace as a system and we don't focus on the causal relations there. Uh, it's based around eight pillars of uh, positive peace and when activated at the same time, uh, I would say you're creating more peaceful societies and also receiving the economic, social governance, but also ecological benefits of a more peaceful situation. Now you spoke about the ecological threat register. So 
risk, risk and threat assessment is also one of the pillars of activity of the Institute for Economics and Peace. Together with the European Parliament and the region Normandy in France, we created a couple of years ago um, Normandy Peace Index, that is, uh, of course, also ranking countries, but uh, based on a threat uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. And this year in September, we launched for the first time an ecological threat register that is looking at eight areas of ecological threats. And we understand that all those threats are reinforced, accelerated, aggravated by climate change. But I think the innovative part of this is the interplay that we we have in this uh, in this register with levels of resilience. So we're not only looking at impact and exposure, but we combine it with levels of resilience, and then your look at the world is completely different. Mm. Yeah, I mean the the work you guys are doing is just incredibly important, uh, incredibly important. By the way, I uh, just for the viewers, there's a course on positive peace, um, and it is really interesting, you know, because it used to be when talking about peace, the concept was to not have conflict between states, and I think partly a more feminist view of that is, you know, I, I also don't want to be attacked when I'm going to the bathroom in the dark or what have you, you know, so this idea of positive peace, I think, has a little bit of... Uh, a feminine aspect to it as well, or worldview. Um, and you can go online and do a, a free course. Um, and if you want, you can buy a certificate. I mean, there's also, it's a fantastic, fantastic organization in general. Um, <clears throat> so can you just kind of give an overview of when we talk about peace and security in the last years, because, you know, we're, we're sort of highlighting the start of the Women in Peace and Security agenda 20 years ago with um, UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And I know your IEP isn't that old, but uh, you know, maybe you can give an overview of like, how is peace and security you know, changing over time? Well, when you look at the, the Global Peace Index, which is measuring what we call negative peace, which is the absence of violence or the, the fear of violence, so basically what you also spoke about before, mm -hmm. uh, we have been producing uh, 13 peace indexes uh, up to now. So we have a view, of course, we have a much more and much larger data sets and we can have an, a more histori historical approach also. But when you look at the past 12 years, uh, we noticed nine decreases in peacefulness and only three small increases in peacefulness over the past 12 years. So overall of this period, we saw a decrease in peacefulness by 2.5%. When we, when we produce the Global Peace Index, we do that based on 23 different indicators, and those indicators are grouped in three families. The first family would look at the uh, implication and, and, and effect of internal and external conflicts. The second family would look at uh, the level of security and safety within a society. Mm. And the third, uh, the third family of indicators would look at the levels of militarization. Over the past 12 years, um, the driver for the decrease by 2.5% in peacefulness has been conflict. So we have seen that conflicts um, are usually fragmenting, spreading all over the world. And also when shifting from an internal conflict into an, an international or an internationalized conflict also have the tendency to last for longer and be more violent also. On the other hand, we have seen that the levels of safety and security within societies have remained on average, I would say quite stable and uh, maybe the most or what for me is one of the really uh, eye catchers over the past 12 years in the global peace index is that we have seen a decrease in the levels of militarization. So uh, about one of the countries uh, invested less in, mil in the military uh, 
past years or about 10 to 12 years ago. So that's a positive evolution. Mm, yeah, for sure. So if, what if you were to apply a gender lens um, looking at the tendencies in the last couple of decades or the last decade? So, so what we have seen, of course, is, uh, is a greater focus since you spoke about uh, uh, UN Security Resolution 1325. So we have definitely seen um, a stronger focus on inclusivity, on lack of discrimination between genders. So that's very, very positive. And so gender advancement, like many social phenomena, is systemic and requires understanding of what is the best system for advancing social improvement. Positive peace describes what creates the optimal environment for human potential to flourish and then also with no difference between, between genders. And positive peace also creates the environment for positive change, what it was needed. And that's why UN Security Council 1325 has been drafted and also accepted. So gender equality has clearly a significant statistical relationship with peace and it is included as one of the indicators of positive peace. Mm. So it's an indicator, so there's correlation, but not necessarily a causality. I mean, do we know, you know, chicken and egg, if, if having more women, uh, women more empowered creates peace or is a peaceful environment uh, conducive to women being more empowered? Do we have any idea? So when, you know, when we look at, uh, at the eight pillars of positive peace, of course, we have developed different uh, indicators per pillar. And gender equality is of course only one of the 24 or even large number of mm -hmm. indicators so because of the systemic approach it's very difficult to look at causality mm -hmm. and to identify chicken in the egg so from my personal experience what i think uh, is is pretty clear is that uh, when we train in positive peace we'd always try to focus on uh, women and youth because mm -hmm. we understand that women have a, a large implication within society and can reach to more people uh, within, within society. What we have also seen is that, as you have said, usually when peace is created or peace development, women are involved. And what we have also seen is uh, when violence is used against women, that is usually a precursor for a larger use or more intense use of violence in, uh, in the future. Mm. But it, as I said, it's a systemic approach, so it's very difficult to really identify chicken and egg or causality. Yeah. But in any case, uh, you know, it's, it's something that uh, is a, a positive goal to work toward. Oh, speaking of your experience, we'd love to hear how you got to where you are today. Uh, put into your origin well, well, story, the, how, why you're working so hard for peace and security. Well, I, I would say I've been working uh, so hard for peace and security for the past uh, 32 years. <laughs> uh, and, and I would say I did it 30 years within the military with, uh, with that as a motivation. And of course, when I shifted gears, I maybe shifted the approach to the creation of peace and security about two years ago. Mm -hmm. I think my career was, uh, was really, was a normal military career for uh, this period of history. So I entered the military academy in 1988 Two years later, uh, with the entire promotion, we were in the television room and watched the wall fall. And we all understood that. All the students then understood uh, that this yeah. was, was going to have a large, a large impact on, on our lives as, as a military. And then, of course, we shifted from the Cold War and engaged into more crisis management, which has been the largest part of my, uh, I would say, operational, the operational part of my, 
uh, of my career. So it's really five years military academy, 20 years in the field, five years back as a professor at the military academy. I think what really, and of course, this operations crisis management, but from the very beginning, really, six months after leaving the military academy, leaving this cocoon of the military academy, uh, I was engaged in my first uh, UN operation in, in Sarajevo in the Balkans, and I was there for about 15 minutes, and my wife was uh, pregnant, pregnant at home in, in Germany because uh, Belgian troops were still deploying in Germany back in the days. Mm -hmm. And um, people were shooting at me, and, and bricks were flying through my windshield, and I and I did not understand why, because I was there to help those people, and obviously they didn't want to, to have me there. So during this first deployment, I realized that not all the orders that I received came directly from a military commander, but that there was something else there. And that mm -hmm. was really the drive for me to start learning more about politics, political sciences, international relations, really understanding the deep roots of uh, international peace and security. And so this allowed me next to the continued education of an officer in, in the Belgian army to also develop this academic portfolio in these, in these matters. And then almost uh, naturally, after 20 years of uh, operational deployment, uh, I came back to the military academy in the uh, defense college. And, I was, and they then asked me to really combine this operational experience with this academic portfolio and then teach that to uh, yeah, my, my military peers uh, in the general staff course. Yes. And then, of course, if I could do that for them, I could start doing this for young students also outside of the military. And this is how the shift began towards a non-military uh, occupation, but still focusing on the same aspects of peace and security and trying to achieve peace, but through other approaches and through other means. And also another thing I'd like to note to just have a more of a sense of who, who you are as a person is, do you have a favorite quote? Usually, usually when it, I would say in my previous life as a military, uh, the quotes would have come from Winston Churchill or some, somebody of mm -hmm. that uh, caliber. Now that I shifted gears, as you said, I think the quotes uh, I would like to come from this, this other part of my personality. And there I would maybe use a quote by uh, uh, JFK. And one of his most famous quotes is about, ask not what, you can, what you can, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I guess that's what I did in um, the past 30, 32 years. So I did not wait for others to start the initiatives on, on my place, but I just, mm -hmm. I just did it. And when it was necessary, I also shifted towards another career and to what was really motivating me and fascinating me uh, also. And, and most of the time, this comes through, uh, you know, people you meet and exchanges you have with others and those people will start influence, influencing your life and influencing your, your choices and your decisions also. So mm -hmm. do not wait for others to decide for you, but start deciding for yourself. I, uh, you know, I work in leadership development and so uh, you're, you're just warming my heart here. <laughs> that seems like the definition of, of effective, uh, positive leadership. Um, so, uh, Going back to uh, just to, to, as a way of, of finalizing a little bit, going back to the peace and security agenda, the women in peace and security agenda, what do you think is the most important thing that needs to happen next and why? Uh, I would say two parts to this answer. The first one is, of course, we need to continue uh, what has been done in the past 20 years, I mean, since 2025, and we need to continue to do so. And we need to, we need to continue to, to fight and to struggle for 
an inclusive world and a more equal and equitable world and a more just world. So that's what we need to do. When you look it through the lens of uh, the Institute for Economics and Peace, I think what we are looking at, uh, the most critical issue is the, the crit critical lack of gender disaggregated data. For example, uh, when you look at the 247 indicators of the SDGs, mm -hmm. less than 10% are available with gender disaggregation. And so for us at IEP, better data is needed to also understand and prioritize there. So I guess from a personal point of view, it's like, let's keep on, uh, let's keep mm -hmm. on, on working on this and let's uh, move forward. And from an IEP point of view, it's definitely uh, have access to better data, better uh, gender disaggregated data. So this, was, this would allow us to even provide better research and better uh, produce better insights on, uh, on this matter. Mm. Yeah, that's such an important thing. That's actually one of my personal pet peeves is like, for example, you look at medical research and uh, when they, you find out that uh, things like breast cancer drugs have been, the clinical trials have been tested on men. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's just, you know, just remember that they're women. <laughs> so Yeah, but, but men can also get breast cancer, but of course. It's yeah, but proportion. you know. And they should still test it on both, right? Uh, there were some recent yeah. ones done on antidepressant drugs, or even the rats in, before it got to human trials were male. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, <Yeah. laughs> that's a, just a side thing on myself. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, having a tea at thirteen twenty-five with me, and um, thank you much uh, for your perspective. And uh, keep on doing the great work. Thank you very much. I will. Thank you. Pleased to meet you. The new normal. It's anything but. And yet we still connect. We talk. We try to fix the world. Thank you for joining me in this conversation about the state of the women, peace and security agenda on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And thanks as well to my guests for sharing their expertise, wisdom and time. If you enjoy meeting these wonderful folks as much as I do, please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes or YouTube and follow us on Spotify or SoundCloud. I hope to see you again on another episode of the mini series, Tea at 1325.